everybody, welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1970s, except so much of this year we're going to be spending in the early 2000s reviewing the incredible John Byrne series, X-Men The Hidden Years. This is my third episode recording uh, for that series. We're covering issues number four and five today, so you should be able to go back and listen to the episodes reviewing one through three. Prior to this, I'll give a plot synopsis a little later. It's crazy and wonky and i'm uh grateful to my <laughs> panel of guests for jumping into the middle of an insane story for this review that we'll get to at the end today uh but before that let me introduce our incredible uh panel of guests i am so excited to have my friend uh nico Vasio joining us on the show for the first time today uh thrilled to have my friend bob quinn back and i am uh, a little bit fanboying over here uh, at the opportunity to have uh, Mr. Trungles himself on my show today. Uh, let me have you each introduce yourselves. Let us know uh, where we might know you from, what your gender pronouns are. And uh, my intro question for everyone today, because the X-Men are going to spend about 20 pages flying through the sky attached to gas bags in a windstorm. We'll talk to that later. But have you ever been up in the air in any sort of crazy air contraption? Hang gliders, hot air balloons, uh, parachutes, uh, whatever you want to talk about is great. Uh, let's begin with Trung. Hi. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to all of you about comics. I have never done a, a, a podcast of this nature before, so I'm super, super amped. Um, uh, my handle is Trungles everywhere on the internet, but my full name is Trungling Nguyen. Um, I use he, him, and they, them pronouns. Uh, and uh, I can't, you know what, to the best of my memory, I don't think I have ever been up in an unconventional aircraft of any kind that I can remember. I'm told when I was very little, um, so I was born in a refugee camp in the Philippines, and while I was there, Mount Pinatubo, the volcano, erupted and destroyed the refugee camp. Apparently, everybody made it out okay, but my parents told us that we were helicoptered out of there. So that might be the closest thing, but I don't think that I would ever choose to get on an unconventional aircraft. I have a terrible fear of heights, and I feel like it would be super ill-advised. And I think that this comic in particular really highlights that maybe this is a bad idea. Uh, yes, that's a terrible idea. Uh, Trung, uh, where would people know you from? Like, I want to just launch into that right at the start of the show. Oh, sure. Yeah. So I have released one graphic novel called The Magic Fish that was uh, released in 2020. I'm very proud of it. It was so much work and I'm taking forever and a day to get my next graphic novel done, but it's on its way. I've done some smaller projects for DC and Marvel. Um, I don't tend to like to do very long series. I'm a, I don't commit to long stories very frequently, but the editors that I've worked with have been really kind about letting me, you know, hop on for a short here and there. So I've done um, some DC work. I wrote and drew a Wonder Woman black and gold issue. Uh, I did uh, you know, like a Batwoman Pride issue. I've worked with Marguerite Bennett and then I did uh, most recently Recently, a Marvel Unlimited uh, series, Karma and Love, uh, for their Love Unlimited series, which was super fun. I had a, a great time uh, working with all of the folks at Marvel for that one. We're going to talk about Karma in a little while. I love okay, her. Great. I love your story with her so much. Uh, so speaking of gas bags, let's go over to Bob Quinn next. <laughs> wow! <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poisoning the well. 
Hi, I'm a Hi, loud Bob. idiot. Um, enjoy the show. <laughs> hey, I'm Bob. Um, you may know me from such series as Knights of X, Way of X. You might know me from The Lone Ranger from Dynamite Comics. I don't know. I've been all over the place. Um, most recently, my graphic novel Black Cat Social Club just came out. You should pick that up. Um, and I use he him pronouns. Uh, I um, is there anything else I'm missing? Oh, and oh yeah, and, and uh. I don't know that you would call it an aircraft, but I have gone paragliding, parasailing, whatever that thing is, where like you, they hook a parachute up to the back of a boat and pull you. Uh, it's not really an aircraft, but it's a parachute, so it's similar. Did you have a pleasant experience parasailing? I loved it. Yeah, it was great. Um, you know, you, you just kind of go up and see water, <laughs> but you know, you're just kind of, yeah, you're just floating around. It feels nice. Uh, I, I I did it once by myself. And I did it another time with my brother, but my brother was not in the in the uh, stirrups or whatever you call it, like the the rigging or whatever properly. So I spent the whole time like holding him to make sure he oh, didn't no. fall, which was actually really terrifying. But um, you know, uh, but you know what? We have a great story that we 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 all survived, so that's good, I guess. Uh. <laughs> Uh, you may also know Bob from a handful of episodes on this show for long-term listeners. Bob most recently most, appeared. Most famously, yes, from, from being <laughs> well, from on me. the Great Malcolm Life podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bob most recently appeared on our episode uh, reviewing the Mad Merlin uh, himself, and we just had a delightful time. It's great to see you again today, man. Thanks for coming back. My uh, pleasure. And then over to Mr. Nico. Hi, Nico. Hey, it's me. It's Nico. What up? I'm back. Well, I'm not back. I'm back with you, but I'm here for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, give us your introductions. Hey, everybody. I'm Nico. You can catch me over on Nico Action on all of your socials. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Uh, I am the host and creator of X's for Show, which uh, for over 500 episodes was the home of all things Marvel and X-Men. And uh, now we're over on YouTube and we're covering whatever my uh, precarious flamboyant little heart wants. And uh, so we've been doing drag race. We've been doing video games, having a whole lot of fun. Uh, still doing Marvel. Plenty of Marvel, but uh, just uh, feeling the media world out there. Uh, he, him, um, hot air balloon, helicopter, tiny little plane, um, bungee jump. You've been in the air a few times uh, and not afraid, clearly, which I am. <laughs> no, I like I like falling until the ground. It's just the, the ground part that makes the falling unfun, but the rest of it seems like a blast. Uh, lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. You guys know me as the host of this show. I am also a former Marvel Comics handbook writer, a documentarian, and a memoirist. I uh, I have only been up in an airship. I have been in a helicopter before in Alaska, and that was an amazing experience. But uh, when I was 17, I was in Hawaii with my high school band, and I did parasailing, uh, as Bob mentioned. And you're up uh, being dragged by a boat through the air, basically. And it was fun. Until I got back on the boat and then it was like another hour on the boat while other people were parasailing. And I was I've only been like enormously seasick twice in my life. But like Disney cartoon turned the color green, heaving over the side of the boat kind of seasick. It was very unpleasant. So I will never do it again. <laughs> uh, OK, we're going to spend the first part of our show uh, getting to know Trung a little bit. 
Uh, Trung, I am gonna get probably a little bit emotional, but I'm not. I'm not gonna cry today. I did cry on a oh, show. We were gonna have feelings. You did not tell me we were gonna have feelings. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I reread The Magic Fish last night. I read it when it first came out. I am a gay man who did not come out until my early 30s. Uh, I had children. Since I have come out, both of my kids have come out. And whenever I'm reading stories that are so beautifully and delicately handled as the magic fish is, it brings up so much joy in my heart. Uh, I was reading Magic Fish again yesterday. I was sitting down with my 11-year-old who uses they-them pronouns and kind of showing them through the book and what some of the stories are and how you're reclaiming fairy tales and mixing them into your own life. And it's such a simple, beautiful lovely story with so much fashion and wonder and and gorgeousness in it i i really i i it's it's a huge uh it's just a huge honor to meet you uh, i would love to if you're willing to start tell us a little bit about your origin story uh and how you kind of builded or bridged that into making the magic fish sure um do you want to hear about my origin story like in terms of comics or like my relationship with the x-men like how specific uh, your your specific origin story because it's so closely yeah. referenced in the magic fish yeah uh, sure. feel free to work in your comic stuff along the way too <laughs> <laughs> yeah no uh first of all thank you so much that's incredibly kind of you and i deeply appreciate whenever a reader finds that the work really resonates with them it's the very first thing that i've ever it's the first work of fiction that i've ever written so this is it feels very strange to have people really respond to it right out of the gate. So I'm like, wow, I hope that I get to do this again someday. Um, but yeah, so I, I was, um, like I mentioned before, uh, I, I was born in a refugee camp in the Philippines and my parents immigrated to the US um, from the Philippines uh, by way of Vietnam when I was two. So uh, we're Vietnamese uh, American family and uh, they were the last kind of generation of Vietnamese boat people who kind of like shoved off um, from Vietnam in like the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, and I grew up mostly in Minnesota and I had a pretty nice, pleasant childhood. My parents were super supportive. They're very like they were real stern with me when I was little because they were terrified new parents trying to raise kids in a completely foreign environment to them. Um, but their kind of guiding philosophy is like, we had a really tough time when we were growing up and our lives have been really traumatic and miserable in a lot of respects. So if you don't have a great time, we've done something terrible. <laughs> and so that attitude has sort of really carried on for um, throughout just like a lot of their uh, parenting and their relationship with me for most of my life. So um, uh, when I was really young, like there, we did do the thing that um, the family did in The Magic Fish. We did spend a lot of time going to the library and reading books together. So that was something that was super special to me. And I always really gravitated towards the fairy tales because that was all the prettiest pictures were and I would ask for the books from the librarians by the illustrator and not by the authors so to this day I, I don't know the names of most of the authors that I read <laughs> when I was a kid but I know the names of the illustrators um, and so visual language was always something that I was really interested in um, and that was something that I sort of like kind of put on the back burner because I was I, I always had this notion um, and my parents never put this on me but in my head I was like you know what I'm the oldest kid in an immigrant family so i need to be as practical as possible so that my parents don't have to worry about me and we got to get our feet on the ground in a real way in this kind of multi-generational kind of way so i needed to you know be super practical and so i decided you know i'm not going to be an artist i'm going to work next to art like i'll work around art somewhere but i won't actually make the art because i don't know anybody who does that and i don't know how people make money doing that um so i went to school for art history 
uh, I studied oil painting as sort of a compromise, but I went to a liberal arts university um, in the Twin Cities in St. Paul, actually, uh, called Hamlin, uh, because they offered me the most scholarship money. And I was like, okay, great. <laughs> I, I don't feel like being in debt as an adult, so let's let's do this. And I, you know, I, I had a really great time. Um, unfortunately, one of the graduation requirements from Hamlin is that you need to get an internship in your kind of field of study. And I got a fantastic internship. I got a, uh, I became an intern at the Minnesota Historical Society. And I was working kind of in a dramaturgical sense. Like I was, uh, I was doing research for the history players. I was assigned like one historical figure to put together a little dossier of information so that the actors could portray them when they came in. Um, when like kids would come in for field trips, they would get like live actors to embody these historical figures. It was great. Um, but unfortunately the summer when I was an intern there, uh, the government like could not decide on a budget. Like the Republicans and the Democrats couldn't agree on a budget. Uh, by their deadline. And so the government shut down. And because I was an intern, I was considered non-essential personnel. And so I was let go. And so I lost my internship. And I panicked because my graduation status was in danger. And I was like 19. So I was like, oh, no, my whole future. And uh, yeah. And so that was when I started like posting cartoons on the internet because I was like, what else do you do when you feel like you have no future and your life is going up in flames? You become a cartoonist. <laughs> so I just started posting <laughs> pictures, you know, on the internet and I started collaborating with writers and got the attention of some editors. And eventually I built up enough of a strong storytelling portfolio to be able to say, hey, like I want to tell these stories professionally and then got an agent, sold a book and now that's what I do full time. So it's a very long spiel. No, no, no. It's a wonderful. So the the magic fish is about a little boy named Tien who is a first generation American whose parents have emigrated from Vietnam, and this the the book is a mix of uh, him reading stories with his mother that are classic fairy tales uh, from his own cultural perspective, which is one of the fun parts, is because it's American yeah. stories but done in a way that you don't expect while he's also kind of wrestling with how to come out to his mom. But the book is also very much about his mom, who is in this new land and doesn't know the language, and she's cut off from her family. Uh, and I, I do not want to spoil the end of this book for anyone. It is worth the read, but there is this uh, this tender moment between Tian and his mother at the end that just makes me want to like sob and hug my children in the best way. It's so beautifully done. It really is a wonderful, wonderful book. I want to shift over for just a moment, and I want to very carefully remind people, I am a 44-year-old man who has two children and a business. And the other day I was in my Captain Caveman tank top and my gym shorts, and I was walking through the park in Salt Lake City, opening up the Black Cat Social Club. And I was literally, <laughs> I was literally like chanting the songs they were making out loud as if I was on a stage with like a bunch of like screaming rock behind me. And I was like, da, 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 da. like I was, I was literally living this book a little bit. Uh, I think Black Cat Social Club is wonderful. It is described as a pop punk, pop, pop punk apocalypse. Uh, it is beautiful. And this is a weird thing to say. And I posted this online the other day, but this book might have the most beautiful letters that I've ever seen in any comic book ever. The lettering is so gorgeous. And Bob Quinn's pencils uh, over, over Christopher Painter's story. It's wonderful. Uh, Bob, tell us a little bit about Black Cat Social Club. And I'm going to, as I'm asking this question, you and I talked a while back 
about you had been offered some Marvel work, but you chose to do a different project instead. And I'm kind of assuming this was it. And well done, because it's amazing. <laughs> uh, I, I will have you know that this is not it. I, I will I will give you the full rundown real quick. So many, many years ago, uh, people may remember the the online phenomenon of uh, Inktober, right? Everybody would draw drawings in ink one day, uh, uh, you know, a, a drawing per day through the month of October. But I would always marry it with some sort of spooky Halloween garbage, right? And one day I drew like this band of witches, uh, you know, playing rock and roll and, you know, doing cool stuff. And an old friend of mine that I worked with over at Disney saw it and he's like, I love these characters. Um, I, I, can, can I write the book? And he, he used to write for a bunch of uh, old cartoon shows like Jimmy Neutron and stuff like that. And I said, well, yeah, let's sit down and talk about it. Because I, when I drew the picture, like I gravitated to the characters and I was like, what are, what's their deal? And like, I kind of had like this real loose framework of stuff that I thought it was about. So we sat down and I basically pitched him like this gobbledygook of like, there's like demons and they fight monsters and, but this thing. And, and he, he very, because he's a very good writer, took that mess and sort of contorted it into a story that held together pretty well. Um, and then so uh, we we came up with a pitch. I threw out to a bunch of people. Never thought we were actually going to end up making it. And lo and behold, Humanoids actually responded to it. And we ended up making the book. Um, and yeah, so and, and now it sits before you today. And I didn't. Uh, yeah, it, it's 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 such a joy to have it out, because like I said, I never thought we were going to make it like it was one of those things where I was like, this is going to sit in the back burner of my brain for the rest of my life. It's never going to come out. And now it's here and uh, I, I couldn't be happier. Uh, and yeah, the, the lettering. So way back when I worked at uh, dynamite a bunch, uh, I worked with Haas on um, a couple books, but uh, primarily like the first one where I really saw like what this dude does was Lone Ranger. And it, I think it was like the first page he, he, he made a really interesting choice about the placement of a balloon. Uh, it, it, one of the lines of dialogue, and I was like, oh my God, this guy thinks about lettering different than other people, right? So when we were doing a book that was basically, you know, so much of it is about music and magic and stuff like that, I was like, there's only one person I want to letter this book, and it's Haas. And, and most people, I feel like when they work with him, are kind of like, all right, you've gone kind of crazy on this page. Let's pull him back just a little bit so it's a bit more traditional. And I said, I don't want to give him any notes other than making sure everything is spelled right. Like you just do whatever you want to do and we're going to just, and that's what it's going to be. Uh, and uh, hope, hopefully people will see that um, it was the right choice. Cause you know, like I said, he makes, he makes crazy decisions from time to time uh, on how the balloons are placed or what they're, how the letters are colored or, or shaped or whatever. And I was just like, yeah, perfect. Don't touch it. I love it. That's exactly what I want. Against, against your art, uh, these words just scream off the page. I felt like I was in the concert and I could hear the music and the drums and the guitar. It's really fun. My only complaint about your book, and this is a good thing, is I wanted more Maggie. Uh, Hazel and Alex <laughs> are wonderful. I just wanted more Maggie is all. All three of them well, are such great characters. You know, the, the the sad part about it is, is that due to some budgetary constraints, it was actually a longer story that had a bit more of an exploration of all the characters. But like when it came down to what the actual offer was and how much time we had and all that stuff, uh, it, we ended up having to pare it down from I think it was originally about 180 to 200 pages to 120. So like there's a huge chunk of the book 
that is sort of on the cutting room floor, uh, unfortunately. But hey, if enough people buy it, maybe we get to do a sequel. So tell all your friends, everybody. Um, Please do. It's a wonderful. It's really, I really genuinely enjoyed it. I, I This is another one I sat down and showed my kids. I'm trying to teach them there's so many different ways to make stories. When you line up the magic fish next to the Black Cat Social Club, there is not much in common except there's delightful people <laughs> behind it. Uh, and they're great, solid, wonderful stories told from very different ways. Uh, I, I really enjoyed uh, both of these books for very different reasons. The screamer yeah. rocker girl in me and the little queer kid in me are both <laughs> alive <laughs> in today's interview. Now, Trung and Bob, you guys have met but not face to face before. This, you, this is a nice Overwatch situation because yeah, no, we played Overwatch dating. together. So yeah. Bob's like only experience with me so far as a person is me yelling like over my microphone, like get on the payload. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, did, did, what? Yeah. Uh, did wasn't was the last one or was the one previous where I was on with Danny Lore? Is that was that this podcast? Yes, you came on with Danny. Yeah. And, and, and Dan, we talked about Overwatch on that too because that's true. <laughs> Danny's a that's Soldier a... 76 main, and I was like, "This." Is, and then I, yeah. So we played Overwatch. Trung and I have played Overwatch together. Trung, very good mercy because I was trying to mercy last night. It was garbage. Did a very very <laughs> poor job. Uh, but yeah, so that's the... <laughs> when you came on with Danny and I is the one where uh, where we read the Conquistador for Filth. We, yes, uh, we yes, yes, about yes, that yes, uh, whole yes, bunch. Yes, yes. That was fun. Uh, okay, Trunk, let's talk a little bit about your origin as a X-Men fan into you getting this uh, gig. But let me introduce a character first. Okay. Some of my some of my listeners have con- kind of gone with me from the beginning, and they are not familiar with uh, X-Men characters that we have not yet introduced. One of them is Karma. In 1980, in Marvel Team Up number 100, Chris Claremont introduced us to a new mutant character named, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, Sean Koyman. X-I- apostrophe A-N space C-O-Y space M-A-N-H. You have to note the spelling because it's important. Uh, She's the daughter of a soldier in Vietnam. She has a twin brother named Tron. Uh, She also has a little brother, Leong, and a little sister, uh, Nya. I'm going to get my pronunciation wrong. Nga? Or... You're you're doing fine because most of these names are made up. We will talk about that in a second. (laughs) (laughs) The family emigrated to the United States, but both of their parents died before they arrived. There's an evil uncle, uh, an evil twin. She joins the New Mutants. There's that time the Shadow King possessed her, and boy, is it problematic. And then there's a long search for her missing siblings, and then she comes out and dyes her hair pink for a minute. Uh, she becomes a teacher. There's all this Susan Hatchy Corporation stuff. Then she loses a leg. She's been through it. This character has a long history. I love her. Uh, she has the power to possess other people or to take over their minds and control them, which is a big theme in your story uh, that we'll talk about, Trung. Lately, she's been featured pretty prominently in Vita Ayala's New Mutants. Uh, she's find, found peace in herself. She died and was resurrected, but cho- chose to keep her disability because she has a, a, a prosthetic leg. Uh, and her evil twin, who cause comics and soap opera, has been living inside her for years, now has his own body. Uh, Karma also has a girlfriend now. It's her first serious relationship. There's a character named Galura. Uh, but one of the things that's really bugged people for so long is her name doesn't work in the actual Vietnamese language. So having introduced this character briefly, let me turn this over to Trung for a minute. So let me hear about your journey and uh, getting this uh, gig in this beautiful six-part story you did for Marvel Love Unlimited. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, 
I feel like I'm kind of a fake X-Men fan. Like I am very, very casual when it comes to my X-Men fandom. My familiarity with the X-Men like as a kid and actually kind of just the Marvel universe in general, like I wasn't a huge Spider-Man kid, but I loved the Fox Kids like Avengers cartoon growing up. And so very quickly, the Scarlet Witch was my favorite superhero. Um, and so that like Marvel was just kind of always in the periphery and the X-Men were characters that I knew primarily through video games. Like I played Marvel versus Capcom when I was a kid. Um, I loved that arcade game and I played it when it was on the PlayStation and I didn't know anything about the X-Men really. And so when I played it, I was like, oh, wow, Capcom sure did a great job with these weird characters. I wonder where they came from. Um, and so I, I didn't really start getting into the comics until I was kind of in high school. Uh, and uh, that was kind of when the, the Ultimates comics were coming out. And I loved Stuart Eminem's art. And so I read as many of the issues that he drew as I could. Um, as far as the X-Men went, I was like, okay, this is really great. I did not understand that it was a sort of an alternate universe kind of thing. And so in my mind, I mean, I had some mixed feelings about it. I loved the artwork in a lot of those issues. And characters like, uh, um, like Colossus, I thought that he was... He had always been a gay character, so I was like, oh, this is great. Zaddy Colossus has always been. But no, apparently <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> and then, actually, uh, I read The Ultimates because, like I said, the Scarlet Witch was my favorite character as a kid. And I read Ultimates 3, and I was like, wow, I'll never read comics again. This is terrible. I should not do this. This is not for me. <laughs> um, and eventually, people got me back into it, and I... Um, started reading um, some of the older like X-Men comics from the 60s and kind of charting their relationship to like media at the time and where they were in politics. And I became fascinated with just like the psionic characters in general, because there's there are always like allegories with whatever was going on in sort of the cultural consciousness and, you know, like horror at the time. Um, like you get like Jean Grey and Wanda are both kind of, to my mind, sort of pastiches of like whatever the cultural moment that produced Carrie was like, there was this interest sure. in, yeah. in like just in psychology as like this new and fascinating thing at around that time. And I had just been like, when I was in school, a lot of the art historical work that I was looking at were, you know, paintings of these women who were like in this sort of depressed malaise. And the context for a lot of that was something along the lines of like the yellow wallpaper where, um, the mental health of women were described as neurasthenia. Like men would be like, if you got depressed as a man, you were um, prescribed uh, uh, cerebrasthenia. And so you're prescribed like, oh, you go on vacation. You like go get some sea air. It'll be good for you. But if you were a depressed woman, you would, uh, they would give you a, um, a diagnosis of, uh, of neurasthenia. And that would mean that you get shut up in a room and you can't come out until you're like ready to play nice again with people essentially. And so all of these characters, like especially like the women psychics of the X-Men of Marvel, like kind of came out of this cultural space. And I was really fascinated with how they all sort of became this nexus point for like the anxieties of their male writers in a very specific way and how that sort of dovetails into their power sets. So it's so I, I really got into sort of reading the X-Men through a specific lens. I am I, so fascinated yeah. by this, uh, by this analysis. I love it. No, I love it. Please yeah. keep going. 
Sure, sure. Yeah, no, so I, I, um, I, I was mostly kind of like reading it through that lens. I wasn't super into figuring out like the exact chronology of the characters. And so there's still like a huge, um, just like large swaths of time in the X-Men universe where like, I have no idea what was happening. And a lot of that was, uh, came out of New Mutants. Like I still know very little about the New Mutants and I've only read as much as was pertinent to my project with Marvel. Uh, I do this like somewhat professionally at this point, and there's still areas of the X Men I have no idea. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I was really shocked when I started doing this uh, the Karma Project because I asked my editor for you know some references and resources, and they were really great about putting those things together. But I didn't get like a like a style guide. There wasn't a character sheet or turnarounds. I had to just go back to the previous comics and just look, like look them up and use the Marvel wiki. <laughs> Now, uh, I, I know a you'll, number of You'll find of that your... to be pretty consistent across all Marvel uh, comic right. projects. The number of times Surprise I've asked for... Like, you run it. This is a big ship. Aren't you running it a little tighter? <laughs> no. No, they're not. <laughs> uh, now, I know uh, several of your creative team uh, on this because they've been on my show and they're my friends now. So Ariana Mar uh, and I are, 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 are wonderful friends. Uh, Trina Farrell I've had on a couple of times. Annalise, Bisa, or Annalise Bissa is wonderful. Uh, how did this come to be? Did uh, did Annalise reach out to you, or uh, how did this project uh, happen? Yeah, Annalise reached out to me. Um, I think uh, Marvel has been very intentional about getting authors that are kind of reflective of the characters' um, kind of uh, cultural spaces, and so she reached out to me. And I was like, sure, I don't know anything about this character, but this sounds fun. And I'm pretty sure at some point, like many years ago, I had complained about Karma's name before. Um, so I had to like go through my Twitter and just be like, did I did I shit talk this character like a few years ago, like in my messy 20s or something? Uh, now, tell us a little bit about the issue with Karma's name. Uh, you cleaned it up, this like decades long issue. You cleaned it up in like one speech bubble and it's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um a lot of okay, so I'm going to like preface this with in the in the moment wherein Karma was created, it was very difficult to do research. And on top of that, comics deadlines are no joke. Um and so Karma was created in the aftermath of the Vietnam War uh to be reflective of the specific humanitarian crisis that was going on at the time, and not a lot of people in the Western world even had ever heard of Vietnam before. Um, and so Claremont did his best, um, did the best, and I, I'm pretty sure um, that uh, people would not have done a better job. Like, this was as much as you could really get, and it it put a Vietnamese character in the cultural consciousness of a lot of people. And so I don't take a lot of umbrage with the character now, because contextually, like, it was really difficult to get things right. Um, but it did bother me for a really long time, because uh, Karma's name, Xi'an, uh, like the S-H sound doesn't even exist in Vietnamese, and so it's unpronounceable. <laughs> um, and I thought, actually, you know what, there are pieces here that I could use. The Vietnamese language is not super... Um, it is complex, but it's not difficult to pronounce or to like do research on how to like now it's much easier to do. And it's fairly accessible because Vietnamese uses a Roman alphabet. Most of the letters have a pretty strong relationship. Like you can kind of if you see a word in Vietnamese, like you can kind of guess how it sounds, actually, if you're an English speaker, um, because we use the same alphabet and it's sort of constructed in a similar way. Um, and so I just changed a few letters of her name. I really wanted to keep it as close to the um, the first name that she was given as possible. Um, 
while also making it authentically pronounceable by, by Vietnamese speakers. I got a little help from my parents. I was like, hey, mom, you've named human beings before. Does this name sound normal? Um, and so I renamed her. Uh, the uh, Vietnamese way that you would say her name now is Mạn Gao Suong. Um, and so Suan is her first name. It means springtime. It's kind of a gender neutral name, like boys and girls have this name as well. Uh, middle names aren't really a super strong thing in Vietnamese. Like it says different things and the reasons why we have our middle names are all totally different. Um, but her last name actually was spelled pretty closely to correctly. And it actually means something along the lines of like strong or strength. And so it was completely appropriate for a superhero. So I did my best to sort of honor the source material um, while, you know, like giving her a name that was pronounceable in Vietnamese. And it was a, a lovely process. Um, in the comic, I addressed it as sort of like a mispronunciation because uh, growing up, I know that a lot of my other like other Vietnamese kids sometimes would pick English names because it was easier. Um, and sometimes if someone mispronounces your name, you let them go along with it because you want to move on with your day and you don't have time to explain like how language sounds to every person. Um, and so I, I kind of like, I, I, I think I, I called it like a Starbucks name or something. Like it was a, it was like a coffee shop mispronunciation. Like we're all just trying to work. Um, but now Karma is in a place where she likes her friends and colleagues. She wants to be able to be accessible to them. Um, and so she's going to give them her real actual name. And this is an experience I know a lot of people who are from other cultures, who are who are immigrants, they've just allowed their names to kind of become anglicized and they just let their friends say however they want. Yeah, sure. Call me Joe. That's easier. But there's a there's kind of a cultural pride moment when you're asking people to pronounce your name correctly. And I loved this for her, but it's intertwined with a lot of complex relationships and also a lot of drama and wonderful superhero antics. I could read you uh, doing blob, rogue and karma sitting at the bar <laughs> for 100 pages. God, it's so funny. The way you wrote rogue in this was hilarious. There's a moment where karma turns to rogue and is like, hey, you got to pretend we're having a deep conversation. And rogue is like, we are having a deep conversation. Aren't we? <laughs> and like, it's just it's it's really delightful. Uh, how did you choose which story you wanted to tell here? Um, you know what? I don't know that I thought super, super hard. I was like, okay, if I were, if I was hanging out at the Green Lagoon, who would I talk to? And I think Rogue came up first. She isn't even a character that I feel super personally attached to. But when I was like, who do I want to run into at a bar? Like, who would be fun to drink with? It was Rogue immediately. I was like, I would drink with Rogue. And so I decided to just have her be a part of that moment. I also loved that that Blob got to be the bartender as well. And so like, I have a very strong soft spot for that character because he always struck me as like real weird like body anxiety like just in the cultural consciousness i did not love that fat characters were being given this sort of role in the cultural gestalt and so to see um writers like leah williams taking him on in a way that was really empathetic and very sweet like i wanted to honor that and so i have like this specific hot blob agenda <laughs> when it came to drawing blob and writing him as well so i was like you know what he's gonna be the hot bartender so this is gonna be a this so I so those two characters were were super easy. Um, I asked a lot of my friends, and actually Vida Ayala and I had some conversations, and they were really really supportive about like making sure I had all the right resources for the characters. And so we've exchanged a few messages, um, and uh, and so I got a little bit of like a here's the queer perspective on Karma. Like he, here are some of the characters that she's interacted with in the past. Here are people that you know like here are the characters that people ship her with sometimes. Um, and so I kind of wanted to like nod at her kind of messy lesbian history. A little bit as well and so I put some of her like um not quite paramours but like 
characters that people would put together with her. Like I wanted to make sure that fans who have like read this character's relationships and identified with that yearning, that specific queer yearning where nothing is ever fulfilled. I wanted to honor that experience and to be like, oh, you were along for this ride the entire time. So we're going to get a little walk through Karma's history. And so um, so Danny Moonstar shows up. She's a major part of it. Um, Kate Pride shows up as well. So I just I wanted to make sure that everyone who paid attention to Karma um, over the course of her her uh, life cycle so far got a little bit of a treat. If you have not read this yet, listeners, read it for what I'm about to mention. There is one moment where Rogue turns to Karma and says, hey, can I borrow your powers? I bet Gambit be way into it if I controlled him during sex. And Karma's like, "Yeah, It's so good. Uh, Nico and Bob, do you have any uh, comments on uh, this story or about Karma and the New Mutants? Uh, I'm actually doing a read through of the uh, New Mutants right now uh, from like way like first issue. So um, I'm only at the Sinkevich part right now. So I'm getting there, making my way through. So that's about all I got at the moment. (laughs) Uh, As someone who has drawn Gambit, uh, would he be into Rogue using Karma's powers to control him during sex? Oh, definitely. Oh, my God. Gambit would be down for anything. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Like Gambit is I feel like Gambit is so many like 90s kids, like sexual awakenings where you're like, there's something like there's something about this character that makes you feel like, oh, OK, I want to explore something with you. And I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, probably going to be down. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I would explore with Gambit is penicillin since I am eight years old. Listen, Gambit is a dirtbag, but you know he would be a fun time. I, I don't know. what if, The fact that one of his powers is that if you don't know that he has the power to control your mind, he secretly has the power to control your mind, is so unattractive. I cannot imagine he's good in bed. That is key to laziness. I, I'm with you guys on everything else, but Gambit was my sexual... Am I sure I'm gay? <laughs> You know what? His aesthetic is so deeply '90s that, like, I, I, he's a. I feel like I could see him being a hard sell for a lot of people, but he worked for me for some reason. I'm over here being like, I only wish he had as many pouches as Gadriva, because, like, you know, if <laughs> in a perfect world, Shatterstar, the the true queer inheritor of the New Mutants, um, just you know, shows up with his high pony all the way up to God. It's just him and Madonna on Blonde Ambition, and they're doing their best to take you to another dimension. Uh, and it works for me. You know, as far as the New Mutants, I just, I don't know. First of all, keep Gambit out of the New Mutants. Um, but uh, secondly, <laughs> I think that one of the things is the New Mutants, the term new means something so hard to quantify because we associate youth, uh, this irreplaceable commodity, right? Because you can become, you know, you can be beautiful your whole life. You can be adorable as a little kid and then like, you know, handsome as an adult. And that's cool. But like, youth goes even if you stay beautiful that idea of this one commodifiable thing is gone and we've pigeonholed an entire generation of characters to this idea that they are the newness and one of the things that it means is that so many of these characters wind up incapable of moving past these notions and i think one of the coolest things is that um carla had under syndrome where she was like so far under the radar you could be like oh no she's she's queer in mechanics it's fine and mm. you could be like, oh, no, she's, oh, no, yeah, she is a great example of an amputee. 
And like you could do those things because nobody was like, oh no, Karma's she's the hot ticket. That's Wolverine. You can't change that character. And so in so many ways, Karma's unique accessibility and the fact that she serviced such a unique audience allowed her to break out of that hard to transform out of newness, which we constantly see people go back to and their inability to grow up. I'm looking at you, Rain Sinclair. And so <laughs> I just really thought that one of the things that your Love Unlimited story did, and I'm seeing so many of these Love Unlimited stories, like your, your, your compatriots in excellence are uh, truly doing the same kind of idea where like the decision was, what if new doesn't define karma? And we're seeing things like that with the Deadpool story that just came out that was so much fun. And we're seeing it with, you know, your karma story in particular. There was a really great emphasis to focus on adult woman mutant and not new young kid that I just thought was necessary for the character to thrive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. She's a character with a lot of history. And like the Marvel timescale thing is something that I was really unused to working with because I was like, okay, so she's alive now. But she was a Vietnamese boat person, so that means that she was alive in the seventies. But now she's in her like early thirties, probably late twenties, maybe. Like she's thirty-five-year-old Magneto was in the Holocaust. No big deal. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> so it's like okay, so we're coasting on vibes at this point. So I'm going to do whatever I want. Uh, the New Mutants, Ego, referencing what you were just saying. The New Mutants, I feel like we're like freshmen, sophomores until Magneto got there. And then it was like junior, senior year, and then X-Force, right? And everything ever since then has just been like, I picture myself hanging out with the same people I went to high school with for like 25 more years, which is an interesting thing because they are they do get stuck there a little bit, no matter how far the stories go. Uh, God, we could stay on this stuff alone and just talk for an hour and a half. I'm smiling. My face hurts. This is wonderful. Uh, I genuinely uh, enjoy all three of you. But we're going to take this time to transition into our issue review for the day. Uh, and we're going to plug this stuff again at the end. But everybody, just again, Magic Fish and Black Cat Social Club are wonderful, as is X's for show. Uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll talk more about uh, Nico's uh, stuff a little bit uh, toward the end of the show. Uh, so thank you, everybody, for uh, for riding this wave with me. For a new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University, our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time from an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education your future starts now at herzing university visit us online at herzing.edu or text health to 85109 online at herzing.edu or text health to 85109 minute okay x-men the hidden years uh once again we've introduced this on the show but i'll do it again very quickly it's the early 2000s. John Byrne is trying to fill in, during a time when there's a lot of X-Men books, what happened after X-Men 66 when the book was still a reprint title. He's honoring the work of Neil Adams. Tom Palmer, who was the inker for Neil Adams, is literally the inker on this book once again. Uh, John Byrne is the writer, the penciler, and the letterer, with uh, Gregory Wright on colors and Jason Liebig as the editor. And both of those two were on my show when we reviewed the first issue. So come hear their memories of how this book came to be. Uh, the plot is convoluted, but here's what you need. Uh, in the 60s, Magneto was believed dead in the Savage Land. Professor X is back from the dead. He sends the, the students to go find Magneto's corpse, but they end up in kind of an Indiana Jones-style adventure where there's the volcano spewing out mist that keeps people immortal and heals them. And there's a 
race called the uh, the Nugurai who are keeping other Savage Land people as their slaves in this like secret place. And Magneto's manipulating all of them using his astral projected form so everyone thinks he's a ghost. That's kind of what you need. Meanwhile, uh, <laughs> Magnetrix, uh, which is Lorna Dane's code name for about five seconds, and uh, Havoc are running around the Savage Land with Kazar. And Iceman quit the team, and he's uh, trying to find a way to get to the Savage I'm Land. Sorry, That's kind of all you I'm need, Lita, get here. Chad, we did not talk about this in advance. I, I have to go because that name is a hate crime, <laughs> and I can't have my name associated <laughs> with public acts of hate against Lorna. Uh, do, we can start here. What are your general thoughts on uh, Magnetrix as Lorna's codename? <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure I got arrested for doing that one time. Uh, but other than that, um, Lorna's got it so hard. Like, she's just got it so hard. Like, we all have that cousin. Hi, Carol. We all have that cousin who it's just that you just want better. You just, girl, I just, I love you. I love you. I love your green hair. I love how it's impossible to tell you apart from anybody else in an essential. I love you so much, um, but I want better for you. Yeah, but, she doesn't seem to be a beloved character. She just makes a lot of really terrible personal choices. <laughs> Hi, cousin. This is happening. Lorna, Lorna was not beloved for a long time. She had nothing to do in the <laughs> 60s books. Then she got the malice thing with Claremont, where that was her story for a long time. It kind of wasn't until Peter David's X Factor that people started to really care about her. Uh, Bob, do you like the name Mag Magnetrix? Uh, you know what? I I'm just gonna I'm, I'm just gonna be contrarian. I love it. It's great. It's my favorite name. Uh, you know, it, it just it just it's like magnets, but it's also like a lady. I get it. You know, like it says a lot with not saying a lot, and that's what's so great about it. Um, no, you know what's great? You know what's actually great about it is that she learned it's bad and doesn't do it anymore. <laughs> It was an opportunity for growth. I've I've taken I'm I'm turning this franchise around. I'm pro magnetrix or whatever. She does you not become Polaris. One tie pod. <laughs> she does not become Polaris for a little while. Uh Trung, what are your thoughts? Do you like the name Magnetrix? No, I, I hate it. It's, it's <laughs> <laughs> when Lorna came up with Magnetrix, it was an off-the-cuff, like, I'm going to try something here. Like, she didn't spend a lot of time thinking about it, and we learned that Lorna Dane is not great at improv. And that's it. And, like, she's so talented in many other ways. Like, she has a, a PhD in, like, geology or something. Like, she knows her shit. Like, she knows she's very smart, she's very capable, but, like, maybe improv is not her thing, and maybe coming up with superhero nicknames on the fly is not, not her bag. And that that is totally fine. She's got a lot I'm else going for her. I'm picturing John Byrne like picking up this book and going, wait, she didn't have a code name yet? Well, let's try something. <laughs> Just for much, it's the fill-in stuff, right? Chad, there's a, a Polaris uh, thing that I feel like only only so many of us appreciate like this. Do you remember in the 12 or the lead up to the 12 where uh, they're trying to trick them into kidnapping Polaris and she has all of these thought bubbles and she's clearly got internal monologue. And then it was revealed that it's just Cyclops and an image transducer. So you had literal internal dialogue thinking, I'm Lorna, my green hair is so pretty. And <laughs> this is from like 1999. And then it was just Cyclops and an image transducer the whole time. So even <laughs> if Lorna's not great on the fly, other people are really great on the fly at being Lorna. Oh, <laughs> uh, this, this says something to me because I'm pretty sure it was Alex Summers who was like, that name is hilarious when she came up with my name. <laughs> Are the Summers brothers just always huge dicks to Lorna Dane? Is that yes. what we're looking? 
Yes. Oh no, no, Lorna. <laughs> Uh, Lorna, and, and, and this is uh, this is spoilers for those that haven't read The Hidden Years. Lorna only gets one storyline in The Hidden Years, and it's another mind control story. She interacts with a group called The Promise that take over her mind. We'll get there in a little while, but mostly she's ancillary in the background, just like she was in the 60s comics. Uh, the cover of this book features Magneto in his brief guise as the creator. This is a Neil Adams design. I hate this costume. He's got some weird wires that like channel his magnetic energy into like weird like laser blasts out of his hands. Uh, he's holding uh, Jean Grey very creepily by the waist. Uh, her, skirt, her skirt has never been shorter. And <laughs> he's blasting a Cyclops and Beast on the wall. Uh, do you guys have thoughts on this cover or this costume of Magneto's? I'd rather see him in briefs than in this brief disguise. <laughs> yeah, it's not good. I think I'm looking at a different cover from you, or do I have the right issue? It would be so embarrassing if I read the wrong issue for this. <laughs> so I found the pages. It started with Candy Southern, and then it ends with a bakum. That's number five. Yes, so we're, we're doing four and five. So we're analyzing the cover for Okay, cool. Great. First. I thought I was real lost for a second. Thank you for writing. Like, what is happening? Your balloon. Uh, okay. These are your hidden years. <laughs> so I'm going to cover the first part of uh, the first story very quickly. The X-Men are all split up, which is kind of fun. You never know. You Like, I, I was buying this book off the shelf at the time, and you're like, what is happening? Like, where are they going with this crazy story? You didn't know how long it was going to last. Uh, Magneto is monologuing to Marvel Girl who has her hands tied. Uh, she is like weak right now. Not only did she survive a crash, but the mists in this mountain are like making her powers work funny. So she's like very much playing the helpless girl while Magneto just kind of screams at her. Uh, he recounts how he got defeated that one time back in 1969, but now he's been astrally manipulating the Nugurai and he... Uh, He's going to conquer the world. I'm going to conquer all humans, basically. is uh, We're very, like, 1960s Magneto. Uh, meanwhile, Angel has met a mutant member of the Nugurai. Her name is Avia. Uh, she looks like a Muppet. She is this kind of skinny bird lady with some feathers, and she can't talk. And Beast seems very strangely enamored of her. Uh, before we keep going, let's hear your general thoughts on Avia. This is one of my least favorite characters from all X-Men history, which is saying something. I just want her and Birdbrain to settle exactly. down. Exactly. Lady Birdbrain. Lady Birdbrain. Oh, Chad. <laughs> I'm telling you, Chad, if you hadn't made that amazing explanation of your happy life, let me steal you away just for that joke, man. <laughs> Exactly where I go every time. It hurts. It hurts because, like, I do feel like there is a, a sort of general. Uh, there's a general sense of between, like, the the classic writers, the the company men of then, where they're sort of like, oh no no, this is how I see the characters from back then. I kind of go still back to that place, and like, I can kind of hear Burn Davis and Claremont all being like, nope, the other one's wrong. Nope, the other one's wrong about that. Like, you you get that sense. So like. It's shades of that era. You know what I mean? It's always like slices of that era. And depending on the angle you look at it, it's all correct. It's just like who's vantage. And um, this definitely calls back to a time where the women in X-Men did not have the functional ability to be people. And um, there is a certain sense of that she's even non-human. Yeah, she's like, like Angel, but worse. <laughs> there's a and the fact that he, the fact that any of the X Men think that a woman with little to no ability to speak is attractive is uh, of of note. But these are not attacks on people. This is storytelling tropes of the time. Sure. These were already past that era, so channeling those tropes is always a little bit iffy. 
uh, it can be done really well. And there are huge sections of the hidden years that get it so right. Um, but this was a moment that was like, but look, we're doing it for the authenticity. And you just want to be like, and I do understand that. But Garth Ennis, we can have a few fewer names for people <laughs> in the whole, you know? Uh, Bob Quinn, as the only heterosexual in the room, is Avia doing it for you? Wait, I'm gay? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it, it must be the, the heterosexual in me talking because I just want to kiss on those luscious lips. Jesus. No, that's the thing that's so weird. That she's got like these got super long, weird, like cybernetic neck. Like, I don't know what's going on with the legs. They're like weird, like spindly, but still pink human legs. And then she's got these luscious, kissable lips with no nose and huge, weird eyes. And then, like, a, a, like a beehive of featherhead. It's she's real gross, you guys. <laughs> she's just wearing a thong too. I love that. I love that she's just got like a thing over her nethers and like some jewelry. So she accessorizes very well. But this like hot bird lady is not doing it for anybody. <laughs> yeah, and she's not. She's gonna be around for a minute, everyone. So here's some spoilers. She comes back uh, more than once. Uh, Craven the Hunter captures her for a while. There's there's like a, there's some there's some stuff coming up with her uh, yet. But she is a mutant technically. Uh, okay, she is a mutant member of the Nugurai. Uh, the Nugurai, of course, again, are the slave masters that have been manipulating these other natives. Uh, Burn gives so much room in three or four issues of this comic to this giant balloon airship that, that he introduced last issue in like a double page spread. Uh, so we have this giant balloon ship. Uh, there's like gas bags and the gas that are inside these bags are from this volcano and have like properties that Magneto wants to use to help him in whatever his plot is. Uh, there's, there's a moment where Marco is ranting to Jean Grey. Uh, she's like, you tried to kill us with a nuclear bomb once. And he goes, spare me your small moralities, Marvel girl. You and your fellow X-Men have all been corrupted by the narrow vision of Charles Xavier. He has taught you that Homo Superior must learn to live side by side with Homo Sapiens. And then Amphibious is there and they bring a Magneto's body in so that his astral self can recombine with it. Uh, there's also a moment where Beast is being so obnoxious and he says the phrase for some reason, uh, look, look at this musca domestica in the body balm, which is basically an unnecessary phrase to mean a fly in the ointment. But Beast is so extraordinarily punchable from time to time. And this is one of those moments where I'm like, oh, I didn't want to slap you across the face because uh, it's a little bit terrible. Uh, I have so, a question about Beast in this era. Yes. I'm so sorry to interrupt, but when does Beast get erudite? Like, he is here, but in the 60s comics, and I've only read, like, the first few issues, he's, like, just some dude with big hands. Well, I think he's supposed to be erudite, but the problem is sort of that Stan Lee wasn't. Oh. So, okay. <laughs> it's one of those things where, like, if I said to you right now, I, I love the nation of Faldomba. And uh, can you please do a Faldomvan accent for me right now? Uh, you'd be like, oh. which is why uh, when asked what ancient Norse people sound like, uh, Stan Lee decided it was Shakespearean Middle English. That's there what the ancient Norse people speak. 
There is an element of Beast almost right from the beginning, though. It's in the very first 10 issues where you see him sitting in his room in a pair of sweatpants reading a book on, like, biophysics. Uh, And then he kind of tosses these big words in once in a while. Certain writers take that very far. Others do not take it far at all. Uh, but yeah, he's 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 always been the uh, like he tries to I don't know the psychological side of it is he he tries to keep himself comfortable by using real big words. It's yeah, <laughs> he's, he's wordy in this comic. Uh huh. There's a lot of words in this comic alone. Uh, the other part I'll cover very quickly. Iceman has had a change of heart. He quit the X Men because Lorna's with Havoc, but now he has made it to Tierra del Fuego. Uh, which is the southern tip of South America, where Sauron had his base. And he is hired somehow. I don't know where he got all the money. He's hired a man to, like, take him across the ocean into Antarctica so he could try to get to the Savage Land. But, oh, no, there's a giant storm brewing. And that's kind of where uh, my section leaves off. Uh, Bob, you will you take us through the last half of the issue? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> from here, uh, obviously, there there's a... Uh... A well, I, I'm sorry. I think I was supposed to be at a well, whatever. Uh, oh, you're so great. anyway, the volcano has started to erupt. That's yeah, the, of- the volcano has started to erupt, <laughs> and, and 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 uh, Magneto's basically doing his victory lap with Marvel Girl, being like, "Ah, see, I I did it. I, I'm the I'm the best at being the worst." And then just as that happens, the wall gets blown in by an optic blast. Who does those? Cyclops exclaims Magneto, uh, and then immediately after that, he gets kicked in the face by Beast's giant feet and uses his cool new suit that we all love so much to blast uh, his, his you know, his his new Magno lasers uh, at Beast. But Beast just punches him in the face and, and like, the fight's over. Uh, and, and at that point, uh, they're like, okay, we got to get out of here. This whole place is, is blowing up. Uh, meanwhile, Avia and Angel are basically trying to get all of the, the slaves out of the city uh, and they're... Uh, yeah, so they're trying to get the slaves out of the city, and uh, there's Marvel there's an image kind of, of like, there's an image of Avia picking up a man with her feet that makes me so uncomfortable. Yeah, it's real weird. <laughs> Never show feet for free. You no. charge for that. You <laughs> set up an OnlyFans Avia, and you do your bird due diligence. Wait, Don't let these Avia's men take advantage of you. What is Avia's rating on Wiki feet? <laughs> Oh, I, I truly don't want to know. Her feet are grosser than beasts, and that's saying something. <laughs> it's gotta be. Yeah, she's so gonna the, be the next main villain of X Force. That's all I'm saying. Absolutely. So yeah, the 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 slaves are revolting, and Marvel Girl basically kind of uh, uh, gets into their mind and base uh, sort of pied pipers them uh, on their way out of the city, trying to get everybody away from this erupting volcano. But there's a problem. This entire city is surrounded by mountains. There's only one way through mountains, and that's with Cyclops's optic blasts. So he starts blasting a tunnel through the mountain and everybody's kind of like, Scott, Scott, are you going to make it? And he's like, no, no, I'm fine. Don't worry about me. Um, And uh, all of a sudden he goes, Hank, Gene, and just, I can't, and falls over. And he didn't just kind of tire himself out. He apparently shut down his entire brain by shooting lasers from his eyes too hard. So as they're escaping from the city, there is a giant eruption of volcanic magma that separates uh, the X-Men from all of these from all of these escaping slaves. And they start trying to make their way back to the hangar of the city so they can get to that giant airship. Uh, Marvel Girl can't fly, but she can float just a foot above the magma. Uh, and I'm sure that's going to be fine. She's not wearing any shoes. The feet are fine. <laughs> Speaking of wiki feet, 
torch down the bottoms, <laughs> went down a couple points. So we're making our way back to the exploding city where she does somehow manage to fly now, but flies up to uh, the big airship. Uh, they get inside of it. Uh, again, more Hank kicking people in the face with those big old feet. But there's a problem. He can't fly it. Why? Because apparently the control panel is made entirely of turds, as far as I can tell <laughs> from the artwork here. So that's kind of strange. But, you know, the uh, they look down. The city's on fire. And, hey, did you hear about this giant uh, storm that's going on? Well, it's here, too. So, yeah, uh, basically everything has gone horribly wrong. They're trying to get these people out. But... Things get even worse as the giant air uh, air balloons uh, suddenly look like they're becoming detached from the airship. Everything's gone wrong. The storm is terrible. What's going to happen? Well, next issue, Riders in the Storm. That's where we're going to find out. It's a what a cliffhanger! <laughs> so this first one is called Escape to Oblivion. The next yeah. is uh, Riders in the Storm. This is a fun kind of punchy issue. It advances the plot just enough. And there's an exploding volcano in the Savage Land, and uh, and Gene holding together a ship full of gas bags is basically kind of her role on the X-Men always. <laughs> She's just kind of <laughs> keeping all the gas bags uh, hanging out together. Uh, Trung, will you start us out in uh, issue number five and uh, tell us how things open? And as a quick recap, Bobby was sad about Lorna. He ran over to his old girlfriend's house, uh, Zelda, and he crashed on her couch and she finds out he's pining after another girl. And she's like, fuck you, get out of here. And then she called Candy Southern on the phone and was like, something's going on. So this is the follow-up of that plot line that we introduced uh, a couple issues ago. Can I so Candy Southern is friends with Zelda? Uh, Zelda, Bobby's ex-girlfriend, and Vera Cantor, Beast's ex-girlfriend, are also friends with Candy Southern, who is Angel's like love of his life, besides Psylocke. Sure. Okay. All of these names, you just want to be like, the guys are named like Scott and Bobby and Hank, but all the girls they know are named like Lila. And like Lorna. Zelda. It's like Zelda Candy. <laughs> I like you gotta wonder if at some point these guys are just like, I long for a Samantha. Like, I mean, like it's there's just some level to which you just want to be like, did you think that having an exotic name <laughs> made these women more attractive? I'm fascinated. I really love this because this naming convention, as it's evolved now, like I'm sure it was like, oh, these are sexy hot lady names. At Thank the you. Today it's like, <laughs> oh, these dudes' names are all just like, here's some guy, and it's like all, the women are all like drag names. It's yes. Amazing. Well, we've we've covered this on the show before, but Candy Southern, very briefly, there's an old novel that was kind of the Fifty Shades of Grey of its time. It's called Candy, Ooh. and it's by a man named Terry Southern. And Roy Thomas named her Candy Southern specifically after that book. I actually just ordered the book. I'm going to read it. <laughs> I'm kind of excited. Okay. It'll be fun. Uh, but Trunk, sure. guide us into uh, uh, issue number five. Let's talk about the cover for a second. The X-Men are all disappearing into a tornado with Magneto and Avia. That's all you need. Do you guys like this cover? It's uh, better. It's, it's very exciting. dynamic. Like, there's a lot of stuff happening. <laughs> Here's Avia in the back, though, being creepy. Yeah, uh, that 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 takes it down a couple notches, I think. Uh, yeah. Her her panties are on prominent display. <laughs> yeah, the the golden panties, the the weird claw feet. Everything's bad. She's straight. Yeah. It, uh, feel, it feels like throwbacky, right? Like it, it feels yeah. correct for what it was going for. Oh, points off for Marvel girl's girl's hand there. What is going on? Woof. You know, 
I, I often like think about how like all of this stuff used to be like these giant pieces of paper and get scanned and sent back and forth. And I know the bullpen fixed things, right? But you have to wonder if every now and then somebody looks at a cover and goes, ah, oh, it's a smudge. <laughs> 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 okay, so Trunk, start us off inside. Okay, all right. So we we open with riders on the storm. Um, there are some text boxes that are telling us where we are. And uh, so Candy Southern is driving this really nice car. Uh, in front of this beautiful mansion, uh, apparently in Salem Center, New York. And she's like, this is Professor Charles Xavier's school for gifted youngsters. Uh, gifted youngsters, sorry. Uh, what the hell is the youngsters? Uh, this <laughs> looks a lot like her, uh, her dad's place in Darien, apparently. And Candy Southern steps out of the car and she rings the doorbell and nobody answers. And she walks around. And I, and then she's, her speech balloons, like she's kind of monologuing internally the entire time. Um uh, kind of just providing the reader with a little bit of context for how she knows the X-Men. She knows Warren. Um, she really wants to talk to somebody. So she's like, you know what? I'm sure that there are some like traps or defenses here, but I want to get caught. And she runs into what basically amounts to a sentinel. And she's like, oh shit, it's it's a giant robot, which is an appropriate response. But she's oddly very like chill about it. Like she turns and she runs. Um, but it traps her and it hoists her up. And apparently Professor Xavier is right there and he does not appreciate her being there. And I don't know anything about Candy Southern, except that these panels tell me that she seems really awesome because for one, she's not afraid to annoy Charles Xavier. And for two, she's not afraid of this essentially a sentinel. And so that already makes her my favorite character in this issue. We <laughs> love her on this show. Uh, Connor Goldsmith really? over Cerebro is maybe her biggest fan ever. He did a four and a half episode. <laughs> okay. He did a four and a half hour episode on this character, Candy Southern. Oh, okay. I need to listen uh, to I I love her very much, actually. Uh, one of the key moments on the continuity level here, it's just a thought bubble, but she basically reveals here that Warren revealed that he is a mutant to her off panel and told her about the school. So that's not something we ever see in the books, but she basically oh. just thinks, oh, you know, hey, they're all mutants here and that's crazy, but Warren told me, so that's fine. So that's this is our first like confirmation that she has learned that uh, that they have uh, superhero identities, basically. So on top of her being like pretty awesome and like not giving a shit about what Charles Xavier really thinks, she's like these express that she's like chill, like she's down with the mutants. Mm -hmm. There's a there's a period. I, I mean, I can't talk about her for too long, but there's a period where she is the leader of the Defenders, uh, wow. which is a superhero team. Uh, she also was really tragically killed uh, in, by the Phalanx in the 90s. And we want her back. We want her back. Cameron in Hodge was so upset about having to share Warren. So he just got a little, got a little territorial. He was like, mm -mm, "No, I groomed him, so I'm gonna kill his future bride." Trung, I'll send you an email when we're done. I literally wrote the encyclopedia entry on this character, so I will, okay. I will send you the link. Excellent. Thank you very much for that. Um, yeah. Okay. So now we move on to um, to Bobby who is figuring out how to weather the storm. And he's very determined to reach the Savage Land and like, I guess, uh, meet up with the rest of his compatriots. I'm not the biggest fan of Bobby for some reason. I feel like over the course of the past decade or so, I've felt compelled to have some kind of like, like I should like him, like he's like our, our gay X-Man, but I've never really found him to be a terribly likable character. Um, but I think it it does work that he is the character to come out. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that tracks because everything about him has always been like very gay. Um, oh, an unlikable like white woman. gay? I could believe that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yes, you're right. 
He's extremely, he's extremely unlikable in the early hidden years, especially he's grumpy. He screams at Lorna. He quits the team. He throws a fit. And now he's like, I got to get back to them at any cost. Like he's, he's not fun to read here. Yeah. But he does have an impressive display of powers here. He's like, I guess I'm just going to freeze the ocean and make a tunnel for myself all the way to where is the savage land Antarctica? Yeah. It's in the middle of Antarctica. Oh, amazing. Okay, well, that's quite a distance, and I hope he doesn't drown on the way over, was my thought. Yeah, this is, canonically at least, this is kind of the first huge example of Bobby using his powers in kind of an Omega-level way. There's a weird story. If you go back if you go back to my episode with, uh, with oh, God, uh, Susan Kirtley, we review an issue where Bobby and the Human Torch team up to fight a pirate, and Bobby generates, like, an iceberg in the middle of the ocean. It's one of his earliest appearances, and you're like, oh, he can do more than, like, throw snowballs at people, which is all he was doing in X-Men. But this is kind of his second big, like, holy shit, he's got some power here uh, moment as a character. If you, you have to slide it back in time to make it fit, of course, but it's uh, it's pretty impressive. I also really adore the, his, like, transformation sequence here, where his clothes just, like, fall off. They like just disintegrate into nothing, and then he just like goes seven hundred miles across the ocean, which is very impressive. <laughs> With the disintegrating powers of ice, my clothes are shredded from my body. Oh, you mean a white gay took off all of his clothes in public and expected everybody to notice how great he was? <laughs> Sounds like pride. <laughs> uh, okay. And then we're back to the deflated gas bags. Right. Yes. Back to the gas bags. Um, yeah. So the uh, the balloon is falling apart in this enormous storm, um, and everybody on the inside is being tossed this way and that. Magneto is having a dramatic moment, and he's arguing with Hank. What are they fighting about? <laughs> Uh, I basically, I mean, Magneto tried to kill them a couple times, and he's like, sure. "You know, fuck you." And Magneto's like, "No, fuck you." I mean, that's kind of all it is. You, stop oh, okay. underestimating me, you stupid teenagers. You know, that's. He's the he's yeah. the Doctor Doom to their Fantastic Four, you know. Okay, yeah, and he's fighting with Hank too, so it's just like the battle of the word balloons. They're both just like talking forever. Um, but yeah, no, they're fighting with each other. And uh, let's see, I, you know what? One thing that I really appreciate about the ways that all of this is drawn is that I, I really, really like Burns' artwork, and it's very it's very kinetic. And I love that he leans into the soap operatics of the text balloons and like really um, that, that really comes through in his line art. I, I really enjoy. And this is Byrne trying to be Neil Adams in some ways. He's trying to do his art in such a way to honor Neil Adams late sixties stuff, which is an interesting okay. comparison as well. Yeah, Definitely a lot a less dense work. Yeah, yeah. Definitely a lot more letting the page breathe. There's a lot more focus on like the kinetic motion through a page instead of on like the shots moving. There's a yeah. And mm-hmm. and you can see it. It's just one of those things where it's like, I love this effort. Who is it for? And so <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, no, it's really impressive. Like I feel like the action feels more second nature and it's not like kind of being tacked on or like they're not trying too hard to express that something is happening, which I really liked. Um, uh, Yeah, Magneto is yelling again. Uh, They're having an ideological argument about whether or not they can live alongside humans while this balloon is falling apart. The priorities are all over the place, I want to know. Um, (laughs) Yeah, and then Avia 
flies out of the oh right magneto falls out of the uh falls out of the balloon he I, has, I get like, the idea he threw himself out he's like right, you, okay, so you he can't catch me he's like um the end is upon us x-men make your peace with whatever gods you hold dear but know this if Mag magneto is to die this day the hour shall be his own choosing and then he jumps out of the he's such a queen i love it <laughs> so he, so he jumps out of the balloon and um avia jumps out after him she actually honestly looks kind of cool in this panel like i'm like okay yeah this like and, scrawny bird lady has some heroics in her which i appreciate and she gets her only word which is shree <laughs> yeah <laughs> and they're very dramatic words too so she's hopping out after magneto do they have a relationship is that like what is their does she she rescue him or she's just i mean magneto was manipulating her people so there may be something about her that still is kind of beholden to him maybe she's trying to rescue him maybe she just does not like being in this ship with all these yelling men who okay who yeah <laughs> she's just yeah, a cool yeah, lady like, and you guys are not giving her the uh, appropriate amount of respect that's I'm, what's going on i'm with you bob i'm trying to help her start her only fans <laughs> there we go i hate her it's gonna be called avia uncaged and it's gonna be a huge deal <laughs> Wait, is Avia, it, Avia unfeathered. <laughs> I, I, I want an entire drag race challenge that's just do your best Avia look, and then I, you know, like milk comes out dressed as fucking bird uh, brain, and you're just stuck with it. I love most characters. I will even love obscure characters. I, I have no problem saying I hate Avia. I hate this character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I'm a little bit fond of the bird characters. Like I drew hot beak in the Karma mm, Unlimited. Yes, Karma. which was so funny. Work. Um, okay, we have to we have to take a moment just to reference that. In Trung's work on the Karma in Love story, there's a moment where uh, uh, Karma's talking about her girlfriend, Galora, who has wigs. And then Rogue goes, it's real hard to think of a mutant who's not real hot that has wigs. And then in her mind, you see shirtless angel and beak. <laughs> so great. <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> uh, okay, so, oh. A Lorna Dane appearance. She looks really good in this panel, actually. Yeah, okay, so there are, so Alex and Lorna are driving something on the ground, right? Like they're. Yes, yeah, they're in their little ship in the Savage Land, yeah. Cool, yes, and then we meet Kazar, who is what, the king of the, the lord of the Savage Land, um, looking. Well, looking active, uh, he's swinging through the trees. It is a good uh, thing that loincloth is hanging precariously between his legs, because my word, yeah, like jungle yes. delicious. I would precarious is how I would describe that. Although I feel like, I mean, like based on all of the lines that are being used to articulate his form, I feel like maybe if it were to fall off, people would not hate that. But also, <laughs> not drawn very lovingly. <laughs> yeah, um, he is. He is cross hatched. Holy <laughs> cross hatched to hell. <laughs> Every line adds a year to your age. He's 607. That's how. <laughs> he's, like, he's, a, he's, he's amazing. But also, yeah. like, I feel like this was done on a deadline and it shows. So, <laughs> but like, I I am under the impression that Kazar is meant to be an appealing, attractive, charismatic, extremely physically capable specimen swinging through the trees. And I think one of my favorite things about this portion of the comic, like any comic that the X-Men go to the Savage Land is this great throwback to like those like kind of pulpy science fiction, you know, novels where they're, you know, like those Edgar Rice Burroughs books basically where um, where there's Tarzan or like just like the, the she books, like just they're all the, it feels, um, very uh, aesthetically congruent with everything that's trying to be expressed, which I really appreciate. It's nice. Um, so he swings in. They seem to have some kind of conversation. Uh, and 
he's expressing to Lorna, like they ask him basically for directions. And he's like, I know the Savage Lands pretty well, but he points in a direction. He's like, I don't know that part very well. They're probably over there because I haven't seen them. Uh, so and then he hops in onto the plane and I guess they take off to go look for their, their comrades. Zabu shows up, sh- Zabu shows up in the back of like one panel for half a second. And there's just one moment where, uh, Kesar doesn't know her real name. He goes, do you not feel it, Magnetrix? And I'm just picturing Scott Summers or, or, or Alex Summers in the back being like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, other characters continue to call her Magnetrix. So this means that she's introduced herself as She Magnetrix. introduced herself to Kesar as Magnetrix, which was the first time she's ever used that term i also like that we're going with magnetrix even if he's magneto so she might be magnetrix which actually sounds infinitely worse but like i like that that's what we've gone with it's like the address address situation you address an envelope but you envelop an address you know what i mean it's like that Mm -hmm. yes yes i feel that 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 feels entirely correct to me uh okay and then try yeah give us one more page Sure. The, the the final page that I'm reviewing is there. Uh, the X Men are still on this crumbling balloon, and Hank uh, gussies himself up with some ropes, and then he throws himself off of the ship as well, um, very heroically, I guess. And there's a dramatic lightning strike in the background. Um, he doesn't want them all to be separated, but he's like, I guess I'm going to do my own thing, I suppose, um, because Hank does not take direction well. Uh, there is yeah. a there's very much like an old lady that swallowed a fly as part of the sequence, you know, like uh, they swallowed the spider to catch the fly. So like Avia jumped out or excuse me, Magneto jumped out and then Avia jumped out and then Angel jumped out. And now Beast is jumping out like they swallowed the beast to catch the angel. They swallowed the angel. <laughs> <laughs> it just uh, it just keeps going. Uh, Nico, to guide us through the last half of the issue. I just I just want to go on record as saying thank you for describing the rope situation the way you did. As a guy <laughs> who went like 18 years old was like, no, I'm just going to be Tom of Finland. Uh, seeing the way that Hank was tied up. Uh, I mean, I didn't grow this disgusting mustache for nothing. You know what I mean? So like, <laughs> I uh, definitely loved that art. Thank you. Um, so I took notes like a, like a guy who uh, works in academics. So, let's read. So, as Gene watches on, cradling Scott, who had nothing to do in the entire section I read, uh, she calls out, not read, but uh, summarized. She calls out to Hank, asking him what he's doing, while Hank fastens himself in what can only be described as seriously suggestive series of rope knots and leaps to find Warren. Hank spends a page being flip king before latching on to an ungrateful Warren who he should have left, and he throws him back out onto the ship. Warren cries out for Avia, and I don't know why. He speaks of his debt to her, which I rolled. But then Jean counters that Avia and Warren were nowhere near each other. They should have left them to die. Warren asks if Jean can sense her, but Jean explains that it's kind of iffy because she's an alien. So, so then as the ship breaks apart, the X-Men creatively balloon themselves to safety, which don't get me wrong, like, I'm not about the Nugari, but, like, they're just sort of, like, let them die. <laughs> oh, oh, it's Ultimate X-Men. Okay, Mark Millar. Terrific. We got this. Um, the X-Men are just sort of, like, let's roll. Great. So then uh, one time, I, I was a Boy Scout for a very long time, and uh, I got abandoned on the Delaware Water Gap in an inner tube. Ooh. So I really understood. It was, like, ten minutes. I thought it was, like, six hours, and I saw it. I was, like, ten. Uh, but I really get what Beast is going through, just riding a balloon as it deflates. I'm like, oh, Delaware Water Gap. I'm with you, dude, right? Which is an actual body of water. It wasn't like a 27-hour situation. <laughs> um, 
So the makeshift flight apparatus breaks apart, sending the X-Men each in their own direction. As the X-Men float apart, Hank is left with his empty thoughts before he realizes he's groundbound, landing in the Savage Land, or so he thinks, coming face to face with Storm. And, so uh, they straps uh, they strap the unconscious Scott to one of the gas bags. Angel's holding on to another, and then Jean's like Scott, and she like tries to go after him. And Beast lands on another, and you get the idea that like hours and hours have passed. He's apparently crash landed in Africa. Uh, was anyone surprised to see Storm here on the final page? I remembered yes. this. I remembered this a lot. I remembered that this was like a thing, and you know, at one point, uh, Byrne talked about wanting to do. Uh, an issue for 67 to 93 so that it worked as an exact bridging between the two ideas. And I remembered all this stuff like that. I remember that one of his things was show people and how they had already been part of the network. So like, as we're reading this, I'm like, this is going to be the storm page. It's going to be the storm page. <laughs> is this going to be, there she is. Founder, found storm. Found, like it's where's Waldo or something. Uh, uh, Bob and Trung, were you guys surprised to see storm here? I mean, yeah, she wasn't yeah. a part of the, the the OG team. Like this is this is this was an exciting reveal. I was like, oh, there she is. Yeah, I was delighted. She's gonna show up. She looks like she's about fifteen. Uh, this is yeah, this is canonically her. This is canonically her first meeting with the X Men. For every year that Kazar absorbed with extra lines on his skin, they were taken from Storm, who appears to be a young teen <laughs> here. Well, maybe we're just looking at Kazar through a series of vertical blinds. <laughs> at all times though <laughs> at all times <laughs> he just carries around an Anderson <laughs> window just at uh, all times part of the fun here the new Garai are gone and thank god because we don't need them again but they are characters out there in the canon for anyone who wants to find them uh, we will see Avia again in this series we will see Magneto again in this series but for the reader again you already know giant sizes after all this so the teams are all split up we got Professor X with Candy Southern back at the mansion we've got Jean going after Scott on the gas bag we've got Angel on another Beast is in Africa with Storm and Iceman's working his way across Antarctica to where his teammates no longer are and Kesar, Lorna and Alex are still running across the ship like the teams are all it's all over the place here and it takes a while for this to all clean up but we'll continue with this uh in our next episode which i'll get to in a minute uh what was it like for uh trunk let me start with you here what was it like for you to read these two issues just kind of out of context uh was this a fun experience for you i mean yeah this was a fun experience for me just because like i kind of like vaguely understand what happened around these issues but i've never actually sat down and read some of them and so the experience itself is just an entirely different thing like i didn't have a strong sense for outside of the kind of tertiary media properties that the x-men showed up in any of like i don't know any of their character dynamics all that well and to see them kind of play out in this way and to be like oh hank has always been like this like that was kind of a cool experience <laughs> uh bob how about for you had you read hidden years before I had not. Uh, the the thing that stuck out to me, and may maybe I'm going to say something semi-sacrilegious, I was, I, was, I was never the biggest John Byrne fan, but when I saw this, I was like, this doesn't look like Byrne, and when you said he was channeling Neil Adams, I was like, that's why I think I'm enjoying it more. Like, there, there's there's a bit more dynamicism to it uh, in, in the artwork in, in ways that um, 
I don't know. I, I, I like. I really enjoyed the artwork of, uh, of these issues, which is, you know, obviously the only thing I pay attention to. So, <laughs> uh, this has been a genuine delight. I love reading these. I love putting it into context. I love playing the slow game on my show, where we're just kind of taking things uh, a little at a time. But the thing that I, I love most about this is uh, I have a very serious day job, and I just get to come hang out with people and laugh and have fun. And I will forever associate these two issues with this particular group of people. Uh, I had a genuine delightful time today. Uh, and this is Storm's first appearance in my show. So we get to delve into Storm a lot. Uh, in the next several episodes, we'll be doing two very focused Storm episodes. I'll talk about those in just a minute. But this is an exciting time and we are entering a new era uh, on my show, which is also very exciting. Uh, Bob Quinn, uh, Nico Vasio, and am I saying your last name right? Vasio? I, I gotta be real. So it's like, uh, we're Greek, right? And uh, I'm Greek and Cuban. Hey, what's up? And um, the last name got super, you know, boat people uh, over at Ellis Island. And it was like, you know, Vasiliodowski or, you know, so it's like, it's Vasilo, but like, Vasilo. I mean, really all that matters is that you call me Nico Action. I really do have people be like, Nico, are you Nico? Is your last name really Action? And I'm like, <laughs> yes, uh, I'm of the Boston Actions. Um, uh <laughs> Uh, I should have asked initially, but thank you for correcting me. So, of the silo and and uh, trunk, this has been just such a delight to hang out with each of you. Uh, we're going to put this episode out on May twenty second on the main show. So, as we're wrapping up, where can people find each of you online, and what would you like to plug? Where can people find your work? Uh, let's go in the same order. Uh, so, trunk and then Bob. Uh, sure. Um, I don't have anything specific to plug like right now. Like I don't have projects coming out around this time when the episode is dropping. Um, but I can be found basically everywhere at Trungles, T-R-U-N-G-L-E-S. Um, I am trying to be a little bit less online or at least engaging in ways that are like going to be good for me, but I'm, I'm around. I'm very easy to find. Um, my uh, debut graphic novel is The Magic Fish, which came out a while ago, but it's reaching other language territories now, which is super exciting. And I'm hard at work on my next couple of graphic novel projects, uh, which I can't share too, too much about because it's not, they're not done. <laughs> so yeah, I'm working on stuff. I, I, I'm thrilled. I can't wait to see whatever you have coming out next. And it's, it just has been a joy to get to know you today, man. Thank you really, truly. Yeah, for thanks so much for having me. This has been so fun. Uh, Bob. Hi, uh, I'm Bob. Again, you can find me uh, on all your different favorite social media sites it, it, with names that make no sense. Uh, I, I'm on <laughs> Twitter at RobotJQ. I'm uh, on Instagram at King of Smaster. Sure. I'm on Facebook at Bob Q's Drawings, I think, or Bob Q Draws. I don't know. You know what? We'll just leave it there. I don't know what any of my social media handles are. Um, as far as things that are coming out, uh, again, Black Cat Social Club is the only thing that I have out recently. It, this is coming out of the end of May, so I'm probably in previews for my new thing, but I can't talk about it yet because it's very secret. Uh, I can't wait to hear. And I'm also an enormous fan of your pencils and just you as a person, man. Thank you for being here. It's such an honor to have you back on. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, new new project, pencil, ink, and color all by oh, me. color. That's what I want to hear. Fabulous. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's going to be real good. I'm very, very excited. Uh, and oh, then over here. to Nico. Hi, everybody. I'm Nico. Uh, and uh, while I'm doing a little bit less comic work, you guys can definitely check out the show over at YouTube at X's for Show and over on Twitch. And uh, kind of excited. Haven't had a chance to say it on a, a show that isn't mine yet, but super excited to have uh, won that crazy GLAD award for being part of Young Men in Love. 
And uh, my book coming back into print, uh, Kid Riot. You should check it out. A whole lot of fun. My uh, superhero comic, a little Cuban dude, little gay dude, saving the day. Uh, check it out at kidriotcomics.com. And uh, that's me. You can find me there. Those places. Uh, lastly, my name is Chad Anderson. I use he. Oh God, I'm doing my like early intro. That was like pre-programmed, ready to play. Like <laughs> I hit the wrong button. We'll edit that out. Okay. Lastly, uh, I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos, but the three of you are welcome to add me if you'd like. However, you can follow the podcast on Gray Malkin PP like podcast on Twitter, Gray Malkin underscore lane on Instagram. I'm going to do a little bit more of a plug than I normally do here. So bear with me for just 30 seconds. Next up on the show, we have our Patreon channel where we're doing focused character episodes. The next one coming out is uh, the character Maximus Lobo uh, with creator Chuck Austin. And I don't, my, I don't know what my expectations were, but it's a really surprisingly special episode. Go check it out. It's actually really, it's neat. We had a really good time. I just did that one a couple of days ago. On the show, the next episode coming out after this, we have once a month, we do character trials. The trial coming out immediately after this uh, is the joint trial of the characters Mimic and Super Adaptoid, which are very, very deep cuts, uh, but the episode's going to have a lot of fun in it. Uh, the episode after this one is going to feature the incredible penciler Gordon Purcell, and we are going to be reviewing an early X-Men appearance also from this era, the early 2000s, but set in the 60s, in a title called Fantastic Four, the, great, the World's Greatest Comic Magazine, number three. Then... We have two Storm episodes coming out. One of them is the next section of The Hidden Years, X-Men The Hidden Years 4 and 5. Uh, my guests on that, our guests are uh, Stephanie Williams and uh, Steve Fox, which I'm so excited. I haven't met Stephanie before. Uh, then later in this month, we are doing another Storm episode with uh, the writer of the new Storm series coming out, uh, Miss Annie Nascenti herself. Uh, so everybody check those out. We've got a lot of great stuff uh, coming out and I'm very, very excited. Uh, if anyone would like to follow my personal ventures of the things I've published, this is not something I often talk about on the show, but I have a memoir out there called Game Mormon Dad, which I am currently adapting into a graphic novel. Uh, and just because of our conversation today, I just wanted to share that if anyone would like to read it. It's fun. I also have a comic book graphic novel out there called The Mushroom Murders and a documentary called Dog Valley. So if you want any more information on any of those, feel free to uh, reach out to me. Uh, Trung, Bob, Nico, what a delightful time today. Thank you, everybody. And we will see you back here next time on Grey Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grey Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane.